This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure our nation's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Texas native and cattleman leader Colin Woodall next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Thanks to good demand, the U.S. beef industry fared better than other commodity groups last year. After serving his time on Capitol Hill on the front lines of policy and regulatory issues, Colin Woodall was named CEO of the NCBA last year. Woodall says the association has no room for idle hands and is ready to take the message of U.S. beef to consumers across the country and around the world. It's about how we evolve as an association in serving the members of NCBA and serving the industry as a whole. And the best way we can do that is to be more vocal. And that's what a lot of our members have already seen in the three months that I have been in this position, and there's going to be more coming. In the past, we kind of took the approach of, well, let's take the high ground or let's turn the other cheek and not give any credence to those who are out there attacking NCBA. And to be honest with you, Jeff, enough is enough. And so I am coming forward in this role put my foot down, and we're going to counter the misinformation, the bad information, and the outright lies that are getting told about NCBA. And we've had several examples of that thus far. i got to tell you, the reaction from our membership has been overwhelming. Uh, They want to fight. They want to fight back. They're tired of these attacks. They're tired of a lot of the ridiculousness that's out there right now, and they want to make sure that we're setting the record straight, whether it's our role as a contractor, the checkoff, whether it's uh, our role in uh, environmental impact when we're talking about alternative proteins. They want to go out and fight, and that's what I intend to do in my new role as the CEO of this association. But how do you wage this battle of public opinion and public consensus and not come off looking like a bully when you've been attacked? Oh, it's uh, that's a great question, and one that we spend a lot of time managing here. It's, it's one thing uh, to, to huff and puff a little bit and say, well, that's just not fair, but there's another method, and that is just getting out there and being vocal and make sure that you're you're getting the facts out in, into uh, uh, into the discussion. And that that is the approach that we're trying to take. Let's get the facts out there. And, yeah, we may use some strong words, but to be honest with you, the response that we've had from our uh, membership is saying we've needed to use some strong words. But as long as those words are backed up by facts, then our membership believes that this is the right approach to take, and that's why we are taking this approach. You're being attacked on environmental stewardship. You're being attacked on animal husbandry. And of the things that I know about the cattlemen, those are two areas that you worked on very hard to make the most of the industry, to protect the animal, 
and to pass this generation to the next. Both of those, as you said, are priorities for us. Let's start with animal husbandry. If we don't take care of our animals, we don't have that industry. And we need to make sure that we're doing a better job of telling that to the consumer. And one of the things that we did this fall is we took our beef quality assurance program, and instead of just talking to other producers about what BQA does, we spent time talking to the consumer going out in a consumer-focused campaign to show them how BQA works, how we do everything we can to help our animals uh, uh, be healthy, uh, to keep them safe. And that is a new approach and one that we felt was a good start. There's definitely more to do there, but getting out there and talking to the right people is key. I think all of us in agriculture, especially those of us in the in the cattle business, we have a bad habit of talking to ourselves, and we need to make sure that we're talking to the right people, and right now the right people are our consumers who are asking these questions. And again, if we can get out there and show them what really goes on, it does make a difference in their perception. And doing the same thing on the environmental side, we've got some very easy facts that we can put out in the discussion that counters a lot of what they're hearing. We know that we can produce as much beef today as we did in 1977 with a third fewer cattle. That alone is a tremendous banner for us to be able to show that we did that without the government telling us to do it, without any sort of mandate. We did that because we knew that we needed to continue to be more efficient as an industry, and we will continue to work towards being more efficient and to produce as much beef as possible with as few resources as we can. Uh, that's just, it's, it's good business, but it's also the right thing to do. And when you get that information out there, it's surprising the reaction that you get because people scratch their head and they go, you know, I just didn't know that. And so that's why we have to be loud and we have to be very pointed in trying to overcome a lot of the misinformation and distractions that we're seeing from these other groups that just flat don't like us. So there's nothing like demand uh, to make the industry flow better. How has the domestic consumer followed U.S. beef and what changes have you made do you feel like you'll have to make in order to be a preference? Well, we have to continue to tell tell our story. Uh, it's it's interesting because I think what we'll find as we have this whole discussion here today is there's a lot of themes, and telling the story, getting the facts out is is key because we do have a consumer that is more interested in knowing where their food comes from than they've ever been, and as such, they're asking questions, and they should ask questions, and they're asking good questions. We just and we have the answers to the questions. We just need to make sure that we're getting it out there. And, of course, everybody's concerned right now with fake meat, whether that is a plant-based patty like the Impossible Whopper or whether that is a lab-grown product that is still under development. There's a lot of questions as to whether or not that will come in will come in and, and displace beef. You know, we've heard that in 30 years uh, we will be an afterthought. And when people think of beef, they will think of fake meat. Uh, we just don't think that's the case. Um, when you look at the, the uh, ultra-processed nature of things such as the Beyond Beef Burger, the Impossible Whopper, the Impossible Burgers, it's, it's hard for anybody who is thinking about this from a, a health-conscious standpoint to say that that is a better alternative when you look at all the different ingredients in there, when you look at the uh, additional sodium that's in there. 
And I think as long as we're getting that information out, the consumer is going to feel comfortable and stand with us. Now, we need to make sure that we stay focused on this competition, and we welcome the competition. That's that's one thing that I think a lot of people have taken wrong or uh, taken um, uh, the, the, the wrong perception is that we're just against these companies. We're against fake meat. That's not the case. They are companies that are trying to make a living. They think that they have a product that the consumer wants. We are all about free market capitalism, so we welcome that opportunity to uh, to compete. What we don't appreciate is when they're out there marketing their product solely by disparaging us and also just not using accurate information. You know, we don't like chicken. We could spend a lot of time and effort putting marketing plans together by disparaging chicken. But that's not what we do. We talk about the attributes of beef, and they just don't have very many attributes, especially when you go back to my earlier points about their sodium content, the processed, uh, ultra-processed nature of their product, the number of ingredients that are in there. And I think that's why they have to disparage us to try to draw people's attention off of what they truly are. How does the Real Meat Act that was proposed last year help to resolve this through legislation, or is it more of a pressure on the new FDA to resolve this and other issues with regard to labeling and uh, plant or imitation products? Yeah, the Real Meat Act is a piece of legislation that we have spent months working on with both members of the House and Senate, and we've had some tremendous leaders step up and help with the introduction of that legislation, and we're really excited about that because what it does is it helps us protect our nomenclature to make sure that imitation is on that label, to make sure that when there are misbranding claims that they can't just sit on a desk over at FDA for years without seeing action, that if they're not acted upon, that USDA can jump in and make sure that action is being taken. Because not only is it about us telling the story of our environmental impact, but also making sure that we protect our nomenclature. That term beef means a lot to us. It is us. We are beef, and we need to make sure that these fake products out there cannot capitalize on that, and that's what the Real Meat Act is going to do. We'll talk about trade agreements in just a moment, but staying with the label, there were some that hoped during USMCA we would revive country of origin labeling. Uh, the side issue is this label now that is product of the U.S. Where do the cattlemen stand with regard uh, to the origin of beef on the label? We could write a novel about country of origin labeling and all of the consternation that that issue has caused this industry for decades now. Uh, it's It's a complicated one. It's a very emotional one, and it's one that has divided this industry very deeply in some cases. The fact of the matter is, NCBA's position is clear. We believe in voluntary origin labeling. That's our policy. That's what we support. And there are programs that exist today and mechanisms that exist today to make that happen. Over at the Ag Marketing Service, they have the PVPs, the Process Verified Programs, that if somebody wants to make an origin claim, they can do so. You have to decide what that label looks like. You have to make sure that it is uh, something that can be verified, and you have to make sure that it has to have some sort of uh, audit trail attached to it. That is the way to make origin labels work, because it's not just about the country of origin. I make the argument that there's a lot of people out there that would love to see a product of Nebraska or a product of Oregon, more so than they would want to see product of the United States. 
and voluntary programs allow that to happen. Mandatory cool should not come back. We have to remind everybody that for six and a half years, it was the law of the land, and there is not a credible ag economist out there who will tell you that it benefited us. And when you look at what it was about to do with our to our relationship with Canada and Mexico in the form of retaliation, that was not something that we could sit back and, and let move forward. When the WTO said that both Canada and Mexico could retaliate against us to the tune of a billion dollars, we knew that we needed to act because Canada and Mexico are two of our top trading partners, as we have seen through the discussions of, of USMCA and uh, the evolution of, of NAFTA. So we were able to stop that, and I think it showed that a mandatory government-run marketing program doesn't work. We need to go the voluntary route. Now the conversation has morphed a little bit, and now there is this discussion that there is product that can come from other countries that can still have a product of the USA label stamp, uh, slapped on it. Now there's been a lot of accusations about that, and we have gone to those people and asked, show us. Show us where it's happening. And nobody has been able to give us those examples. Regardless, it's worth taking a look at to see what possibly needs to be changed. And from our perspective, making sure that AMS is uh, utilizing PVPs for origin claims is probably the best way to move forward here. And so that's why NCBA has reengaged on this discussion about Project USA and country of origin labeling and making sure that we do not... uh, uh, commit the same mistakes that we did with mandatory cool for six and a half years and that what we do moving forward is something that actually works for the industry, is auditable, and uh, can uh, meet all of our WTO uh, mandates. So without going into detail on each one of these, it's clear that the label uh, that the consumer sees is growing ever important and that definition means something from the standpoint of organic beef or grass-fed beef or GMO-free beef. We're finding that the consumer is interested in more about where their product was raised, and there needs to be clear definition, according to some, of what's on the label and what that means. And that's a conversation that has uh, been going and will continue to go on. There's also the question, at what point in time do you have too many labels on a package of beef? What happens when you get to the point where you can't even see the beef because of all the labels under it? Uh, we have to keep that in mind as well. But, you know, FSIS has actually put out some recent guidance to try to help better define uh, organic and natural. And I think as long as that we have uh, voluntary programs that you can defend, that have criteria that you can measure against, that uh, you can audit, then we need to make sure that folks that believe that those are useful for their marketing have the opportunity to use those. Colin, one of the successes of 2019 is a trade deal with Japan. What does that mean for U.S. beef? Oh, it's tremendous for us to be able to take our 38.5% tariff and reduce it to uh, to on par with our with our competition, being Canada, Australia, the other PPP countries. Uh, to be able to match them was a was a huge win because what we saw is that with the other TPP countries moving forward, they had that tariff advantage over us. Basically, they were going to be cheaper. And the Japanese consumer is much like the American consumer. They may want a Cadillac, but they might only be able to afford a Hyundai. And we knew the Japanese consumer 
wanted our product. They love our product. That's why we continued to sell so much over there. But they were starting to scratch their heads, saying, "Well, it's it's a little little expensive compared to uh, some of these uh, these these other products." So to be able to get us on par on a level playing field is a huge win. We are glad that's being implemented, and look forward to uh, doing even more business over in Japan here in 2020 and beyond. So when USMCA and when the Phase One trade deal with China are finally implemented and sales are taking place, what does that mean for the cattle industry? Yeah, we don't have any uh, definitive answer on what that means on a per head basis. It's one of those we're going to have to continue to promote our product, make sure that we're taking full advantage of these new rules of uh, of engagement and rules of play, and start measuring that. So, you know, I think as we get into the first quarter of uh, this year, we'll have a better idea of financially what that's going to mean to us. So with Europe, there is new leadership and perhaps a new mindset, a new opportunity perhaps to begin negotiating with them. Is there opportunity in Europe for U.S. cattle? Yeah, there's already been opportunity, and we uh, we saw that with uh, the efforts by USTR to help us get a U.S.-specific uh, quota into the European Union for high-quality beef. We were able to do that by still maintaining all of our rights under the WTO case, You know, because this goes back over 30 years now when they banned hormones, and we have uh, won the case against them. But Having a U.S.-specific quota, I believe, will help us sell more product into the European Union. And, again, it is a discussion about uh, how do we make sure that the consumer over there understands that they can trust our product, feel safe and eat in our product, and be able to capitalize on uh, uh, you know what, whatever the next step is in a U.S.-EU discussion to try to take down some of these non-tariff trade barriers that have haunted us for quite some time. And we're hoping to be able to do the same with the U.K. once Brexit is done, to be able to have a discussion with them to make sure that science is the, the the lead in the discussion of trade rather than the precautionary principle or this whole idea of being against production practices which are tried and true. A couple of domestic issues that have been around for some time. A labor bill did make its way uh, from committee and through the House of Representatives, and there's question now if it will find traction in the Senate. Uh, how big is a labor bill to the beef industry, and what happens if this issue gets pushed back to 2021 or 2022? Well, a labor bill would be huge for us in the cattle business because we need access to that labor to make sure that we have the workers needed, whether those are in feedlots, packing houses, even on farms and ranches. But the bill that was passed doesn't do that for the cattle business. It's very good for seasonal workers, but we're not a seasonal business. We need year-round relief, and we just don't believe that the bill that was passed goes far enough. So to be honest with you, if this goes into uh, the next Congress, it's probably best because there need to be some tweaks here to make sure that all of us in agriculture can benefit, not just the seasonal needs. So, Colin, the statement might be that it's easier to implement a new regulation than it is to do away with an existing regulation. And Waters of the U.S. is exactly one of those examples. What do you say now about this issue that is back again in a courtroom in South Carolina and opposing sides are standing off? It it just shows that even though you think that you're getting close to winning an issue in Washington, D.C., it always comes back to haunt you. Uh, We have seen that 
time and time again. Just when you think that an issue is done, it comes back. And WOTUS is a great example. You know, a lot of folks have been focused on this 2015 regulation. A lot of people forget that this was a fight in Congress long before it ever became an Obama-era uh, regulation. So it's something that uh, is is uh, up for grabs again. We're still not done here. And I doubt that even once we have a final rule and a resolution to the, uh, uh, the, the, the current court action, that it will be done. More than likely, this is going to come up again in a future administration. So this is not the end of WOTUS. And while we still believe we have the high ground right now, uh, we, we have to make sure that we continue to build the war chests that are going to be needed in the future to, to fight this. Um, it's, it's an easy case for a lot of people who don't understand agriculture to go out and try to regulate a ditch. It's another thing to sit back and actually understand that we're not talking about not regulating waters. We're just trying to figure out where the best place for the federal government to be versus local governments. And a lot of people forget about that in this discussion about waters in the United States. Colin Woodall, we congratulate you on your new position as CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Association and look forward to your success with the group. We thank you for taking time to spend with us here on Open Mic. And, sir, today you have the last word. It's a great opportunity to be in this role because there is a lot of good news coming towards this industry. We have great demand. We have a great product. And we have the fire in our belly to go out and fight for it. So I think that there is a lot of good that's coming our way as an industry, a lot of good for cattle producers. And for those who believe that we're going away in 30 years, they're going to be awfully surprised when we're stronger than ever. Our thanks to Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jack Allen.